Hey guys, it's Mara. And Sincere. Welcome back to another episode of Politox. For today's episode, we are sharing the audio from the Pizza and Politics event this past Wednesday. We invited professors Jackson Miller, Patrick Cottrell, and Una Kimokeo-Goes to review the first presidential debate between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. The Pizza and Politics Debate Debrief event was coordinated by the Political Science Department in collaboration with the Communication Arts Department. The event is a part of Linfield Civics Fest, which is put on by the Political Science Department in conjunction with the Associated Students of Linfield University, the Wildcat Events Board, and Linfield Speech and Debate. The purpose is to encourage students to grow their civic engagement. Did you watch the debate, Sincere? I did. Did you, Mara? I did, too. What did you think about it? Well, in all honesty, I saw it as a missed opportunity for change. Both candidates were divisive and chaotic, which made calling it a debate seem far-fetched. There are nights where debates that can like this can incite hope and promise, but debate night left me kind of unbalanced. It really sucks having a lack of faith in your candidates before they're even elected. Yeah, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was not surprised at how the debate went, unfortunately. Um, It was immature, and I did not learn anything about any of the candidates' platforms or policies. One thing did cross my mind while watching the debate, though. I thought about how Hillary and Biden dealt with Trump's constant interrupting and bullying. Biden definitely snapped back at Trump in a way that Hillary Clinton didn't, and in my opinion, couldn't have. In a tweet from Tuesday night, author and lawyer uh, Jill Filipovic wrote, I so feel for Hillary now because I'm positive she wanted to say shut up and just couldn't. Hillary Clinton actually responded and said, you have no idea. So take from that what you will. Um, But without further ado, here is Pizza and Politics Debate Debrief with Linfield professors Jackson Miller, Patrick Cottrell, and Una Kimokeo-Goes. Okay, so... First panelist tonight is Jackson Miller from the Department of Theater and Communication Arts. So he is a communication scholar who studies argumentation and debate, nonverbal communication, persuasion and social influence, and protest and reform rhetoric. And our second speaker of the night is going to be Una Kamakeo-Goes. Una specializes in areas of rhetoric and identity, argumentation, and public speaking. She also teaches communication arts and is the director of our speech and debate club on campus, of which many of us are a part of. So if you are interested in that, have questions, or want more information, feel free to find me after the event, and I can answer any questions that you might have. All right, and then last of all, we have um, Professor Pat Cottrell, Department Department Chair of the Political Science Department. His special areas of interest are foreign policy, diplomacy, security, and the politics of sports. All right, so um, the first panelist uh, who wants to go, okay, Una, take it away. Can you all hear me all right? Um, Can you try that again? Yeah, can you all hear me on that side? Looks like Zoom can hear me. All right, I'm so glad, okay. So last night's event, CNN called it an avalanche of lies, and Wolf Blitzer called it an embarrassment for the United States of America. And I don't disagree, but I want to suggest that we can still learn from tonight's what some people might call donkey circus. 
So as the introduction admitted, my name is Una Kimokeo-Gos. I teach in communication arts. I'm the director of speech and debate. In addition to being interested in speech and debate as the director, I also worked for a presidential campaign as one of my first jobs right out of college. So I've been interested in presidential debates for a while, even while I'm frustrated. Before I go into the talk, I want to say that I suspect some of you are feeling unsure or overwhelmed by last night's debate. And I wanna say that you're not alone and that I hope that tonight's conversation, the ability to connect with people either afterward in this conversation who are on Zoom or have the support of people there will remind you both of the community that you have and the possibilities for conversations that can happen even when the political climate at a national level may not be what we want. So today, in terms of talking about this issue, I wanna first begin by briefly talking about how the presidential debates matter. Ask the question, was this really a debate? Spoiler, no. And talk about how we can move forward from here. So first, a little bit of background on why the debates might matter. So debates of various sorts have happened for a long time, but since 1960, there was the first general election debate. And then there was a pause for a while. And then in 1976, they picked up again. My high school speech and debate coach, who coached for 35 years and coached students in international debate in Cuba, Tunisia, and across France, has kept a scorecard of presidential debates since 1976 looking at issues like how they bring up policies, how they engage one another. And last night he was so frustrated that he tore up his card. So if it felt for some of you who've never watched a presidential debate that it was a little out of control, you're not alone. Part of why it might matter is ABC is claiming that 5% of voters are still undecided. I find that a little surprising, but that's a number that people are discussing. So a presidential debate theoretically gets out ideas so that people who are on the fence one way or another can understand more about the people involved and become more interested. I think what is also often the case is that people who don't frequently vote or who may be considering switching parties or sometimes vote for a third party candidate those people might be drawn into a debate and feel more attached to a candidate before or after. And in th those instances, it's really difficult to measure them in traditional polling. And so it's hard to tell how much we reach those people. That being said, today the Atlantic claims that presidential debates, quote, rarely make much difference in the race. So, even if we suspend this question of whether or not the debates are effective in getting voters to change their mind, I want to say that there are still things that we can learn in terms of insights to the candidates, to U.S. politics in general, and unfortunately, I think we got a hint last night that we're seeing a bit of our democracy in crisis. So with that context, let me talk more about last night's event specifically. The question, were these debates in my opinion, no. And the reason why is traditionally when we think of debates, we think of a format that is guided where people bring forth proposals, 
question the proposals back and forth and explore specific ideas that they may have in disagreement. But last night's setup didn't necessarily allow for that exchange, but particularly the way that the events unfolded didn't allow for a clear back and forth and an explanation of policy proposals. Some people have said that the format itself is problematic and that this is why we don't have true debates. In fact, the League of Women Voters used to be a major supporter of presidential debates and they pulled out in 1988, specifically citing that they felt the debates were, quote, devoid of substance and hoodwinking the American public. So if these aren't exactly debates, they still have a purpose. And that purpose is in part to serve as a spectacle for the media. And that of course sounds negative, but at the same time, in being part of the media spectacle, it helps candidates get apart across certain slogans and certain key ideas that the populace might latch onto. So perhaps overwhelmed in all of the discourse going around the debate, that they have moments of clarity and, and particular terms and values that they feel they can associate with, even if it isn't a true back and forth and a deep, deeper debate on policy issues. It's also certainly important for entertainment. So CNN says that in 2016, in that first presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, that 84 million people tuned into that debate. And at that point, President Trump was an unknown and certainly Hillary had a lot of symbolic value as a candidate. And so it's perhaps unsurprising that so many people were motivated to be involved. ABC last night was speculating that numbers were gonna be likely the same or even more viewers with last night's debate, in part because COVID has made us sort of unable to participate in the traditional electional election events we would normally have. So we haven't been able to go to rallies, we haven't been able to canvas, we haven't gone to house parties, right? So ABC was thinking like people are bored and people like want more politics. And so they're gonna, they're gonna watch this debate and they're gonna be intrigued. But as of this morning, Forbes believes that the viewership is actually down by 30% from those 2016 numbers. And if you ask people who either watched the full debate or who turned off the debate, a lot of the language was about people feeling exhausted by the political process right now. And that's not entirely the political process's fault, right? Certainly our energy generally around COVID has led to that, but it's interesting that so, so many fewer people were involved in last night's debate than in 2016. So if these aren't exactly debates, then how do we proceed? What, what can we see valuable out of what we did get? So first, I wanna, I wanna say that I understand that these debates were hard to watch. There were a lot of ad hominem attacks where, for example, Biden was calling President Trump a fool rather than talking about his arguments. So they were arguments against the person rather than against his policy ideas. And there were concerning takeaways. The line, that the proud boy should stand back and stand by, I think concerned a lot of people. I live in Salem, Oregon. Our capital frequently has members of proud boys involved in various protests. And that language does seem 
to uh, encourage their behavior and in a way that is that I think people are right to be concerned about. As a result, people are saying that maybe we should cancel the debates altogether, that this has become an outlet for Trump to further division in the United States. And that's actually what The Atlantic was suggesting this very morning. But for my two cents, after the debate, when Kamala Harris was asked what she thought about Joe walking away from the next debate, her response was that Biden is going to take every opportunity he has to connect to the American public and to speak to them directly. And unsurprisingly, as somebody who coaches debate and is interested in communication, to me, we know that the president has lots of outlets to communicate to people. So any outlet for there to be an exchange at any level seems to, to be valuable. I definitely think the possibility of doing things like turning off the mic or perhaps Biden walking away from the stage for a moment might encourage deeper discourse, but we'll have to see. For you all, many of you, I know this is your first election and I suspect this is very overwhelming. And just a little bit of insight. My first election was 2000, in which a president won by a very limited amount of votes, a Supreme Court decision, and had lost the popular vote, right? So like things seemed very dire. And then in 2004, here I go out working for the presidential campaign and my candidate loses and President Bush wins by a greater margin, right? But we had a swing back, like politics works in cycles. And even in those moments, there were then really positive policies that I that align more with my political beliefs that came after that. But additionally, remember that even if the presidential politics isn't what you want, that we still have state, local elections, <laughs> important Senate races, um, not to mention the fact that we're in an initiative state that can help really still make us feel connected. Additionally, even during COVID, when people are scattered, scared, and separated, we see people constantly finding connections. We find that on Linfield's campus when students were concerned about how sexual harassment was being treated and they organized. We've seen it around Black Lives Matter, people coming to sit-ins, to rallies, to vigils, to protests, and connecting, even in a time when it, it threatens their very lives. So there's an incredible energy there. Last weekend in Salem, there was a last minute bake sale put together by Black Lives Matter to raise money for people affected by the forest fires. And they raised $4,000. The forest fires that have affected California, Oregon, and Washington have brought people together to volunteer, to donate, to support one another, to bring people in their homes across vast political divides. And so it's clear that even when the, the big picture shows us this division and this hostility that when it comes down to it, when people are in need, communities are still reaching out to one another. And so to conclude, I just wanna say, I know we're in this moment where politics and entertainment have become incredibly intertwined and it can be frightening and it can be, cause a lot of disillusionment but there are still these moments where you see the connection and that we're still able to ask for something better and to ourselves model better behavior as we go forward. Thanks.
Thank you so much. Okay. Um, so next panelist, I think. Yeah. Okay. Next panelist, Pat Jackson. Uh, I think we decided I was going to go next, if that's okay, Pat. All right. Uh, thank you. And I, I just want to start my comments by taking us back in time to 1960, because it didn't get talked about in all of this, but this year actually is the 60th anniversary of general election debates between candidates. Uh, and uh, what a way to celebrate. Uh, I want to I go to a quotation from John F. Kennedy during this debate, though. Uh, he debated Richard Nixon. Again, that was the first general election debate. Worth noting as an aside, for those of you who are interested in Linfield history, that Nixon debated here at Linfield in the 1940s when he was a student at Whittier College. Uh, he didn't win or anything, but he was a participant. So, <laughs> uh, But Kennedy in that debate said this, we can no longer afford to be second best. I want people all over the world to look to the United States again, to feel that we're on the move, to feel that our high noon is in the future. I watched the uh, BBC coverage of the debate yesterday and I definitely do not think what we saw last night made anyone in the global community believe that our high noon is in the future. So the question I wanna pose for all of you uh, for our discussion is, what has happened over the past 60 years to get us to this point? Uh, and I've got some ideas and I'm gonna talk about three things that have some overlap with uh, some of the themes that Una talked about uh, and in her uh, address as well. But I'm gonna talk about the um, fetishization of the US presidency. I'm gonna talk second about bad performance art and just third about candidate strengths and weaknesses. But I wanna start with a thought-provoking idea from the modern day philosopher, Dr. Emmett Brown of Back to the Future fame, the classic 1985 film, who said to Marty McFly upon seeing the video camera that he brought back to 1955, no wonder your president has to be an actor. He's gotta go good on television. Uh, here I wanna talk a little bit about uh, the fetishization of the presidency. And, and here's what I mean by that. Our media environment and the consumer behaviors that we have have created, I think, an unhealthy fixation on this position. And President Trump is actually absolutely, depending on what your perspective is, you know, either the perfect or the worst person in terms of taking advantage of this. Uh, we know, and it's something that's commonly studied for those of you who are journalism and media studies majors and even communication arts majors, the agenda setting function of the media should be a concept that's familiar to you. And Basically, that's the idea that the media tells us what's important and where we should focus our intention. Let me ask you all this. How often have you seen and heard the name Trump of late, if you've watched any news? You've heard it a lot. And, and here's the thing in terms of this unhealthy fixation on the presidency. Not only is it top of the agenda on a lot of uh, national, uh, regional news, and even global news, but uh, Trump is manipulating the fact that he doesn't care whether or not it's being mentioned in a positive light or a negative light. He just wants to get more mentions of his name. I mean, that's part of his agenda setting strategy. And the repetition is the oldest persuasive strategy. And it's something that was at play in 2016. I think we're seeing it again in, in 2020. Uh, to give you another perspective on this though, I, I wanna talk just briefly about the difference between uh, campaign rhetoric and governance rhetoric. 
there was a presentation I saw at one of our regional communication conferences a few years ago that was looking at Obama and comparing speeches that Obama made during the campaign and speeches that he made after attaining the office of the presidency. And the title of the work, it was very perfectly titled, was Campaigning in Poetry and Governing in Prose. Uh, now, to be fair, uh, when we talk about governing and prose, many voters likely kept their focus very much on Obama's poetry, his soaring rhetoric, and his uh, wonderful figurative language and so forth in campaign speeches and so forth. They never paid much attention to the prose. But he did, as an individual, make a difference between those two. I think with Trump, we're seeing more what could be described as prosetry. Uh, there's a collapse of any semblance of distinction between campaigning and governing. And, and I mean, his Twitter account is a perfect example of this, right? That is mostly not governance related discourse. That's, that's in the realm of campaign discourse. So he's not really separating the poetry from the prose. And as Una talked about politics and entertainment being intertwined, we're seeing a president who's doing that very purposely uh, with his uh, rhetorical strategy. So what are the implications of all of this? One, um, there's a harmful and false belief that reading or knowing about the president is equivalent to reading or knowing about national and global events and activities. So we've got to uh, uh, be concerned about that, I think. And I, I think a consequence, as I mentioned before, of our singular focus on this one position and this one individual is a less informed and significantly more divided country. It's easier to love or hate an individual. And if we're putting all of our focus on that individual, that, that has a tendency to increase division. So now that we understand a little bit about the notion of the presidency and why this singular focus on it is bad, I wanna talk a little bit about what we saw last night. Uh, I need to go to Doc Brown again though, where when he says, again, from Back to the Future, roads, where we're going, we don't need any roads. And that's kind of what the structure of the debate felt like last night for me. Uh, it was a debate, uh, and not a debate, as Una said. It was maybe a piece of performance art, but not even a very good one of those. Uh, there were a number of titles that I came up with for what we saw, train wreck, but that might be an insult to the Amy Schumer film. Uh, Look Who's Talking Constantly, but that might be an insult to movies about talking babies. Uh, the one I landed on was Three Old White Men Yelling, and that's a terrible title, but it's probably the most accurate because for me, the optics of this is truly awful in 2020, given the ongoing work of the global movements for racial justice, gender justice, and other efforts to combat oppression and ensure safety and equity. Uh, it's, and I think that's part of the reason Una alluded to this, that watching the debate was very difficult, uh, and, and some would even say traumatizing for some viewers. Uh, but we have to acknowledge one thing, and Una uh, echoed this very uh, powerfully in her remarks as well, that televised debates have never been actual debates. E even we can romanticize the Nixon and, and Kennedy debate that I referred to at the beginning, but uh, in past years, we've come a lot closer to actual debates. Uh, modern debates, though, uh, have things like contracts from the campaigns that are very detailed and spell out every detail, including things like the temperature in the room, because they want to control the amount of perspiration that their candidate has. Uh, during the Kerry-Bush debates, George W. Bush had a requirement that he would have a pedestal behind his podium that would make him appear when he was standing at the podium to be at the same height as John Kerry. So every, you know, everything is very carefully controlled and staged by the campaign. So 
There's not really an incentive in the formats that we use, although uh, they've tried different formats of the years for candidates to actually listen and respond to one another. And I think that's something you have to have for a good debate. And the reality of what we're watching is this, with all the, the details that the, and control over the image that campaigns have, we're watching dueling campaign stump speeches with very little in the way of actual clash of ideas. Uh, there's some clash of ideas, but uh, I, you know, I, I think they've never been actual debates and we're better off acknowledging that they're more like performance art, a creative exhibition produced through actions or spoken words presented to an audience rather than an exchange of arguments between parties. So now that we've got a better understanding of bad performance art, and uh, I hope you can understand why the debate is that, I do want to talk a little bit about candidate strengths and weaknesses. And to go back to Doc Brown one more time, uh, I love Back to the Future, if you can't tell by now. You have to forgive the crudeness of this model. I did not have time to paint it or build it to scale. And that's kind of what I felt about debate prep last night in the movie Doc was referring to his model for uh, how to get the DeLorean and Marty back to 1985. Uh, there were some strengths and weaknesses that I want to highlight briefly, though, and I've got some observations on content, nonverbal communication, and broader meta-level messages about leadership. On the content side, uh, I would give a, a, a nod to Biden here uh, in terms of bringing more quality content uh, and arguments. Uh, on the issues when you can actually hear them during the debate because the interruptions were constant, Biden provided the most intelligible and concrete information. We do need to recognize that at the same time that what we got from him was uh, largely a series of claims without specific evidence and limited reasoning. So uh, within that constraint, uh, we got a little bit more from him. Uh, Una already talked about this, but Trump relied much more heavily on logical fallacies like ad hominem attacks, and a series of glittering generalities. He, he used a lot of vague words to provoke emotional responses, was really speaking to his base as opposed to conveying new information. Uh, yes, and we have to say on the content side as a negative on Trump's side, uh, racism and a lack of empathy are certainly negatives, but honestly, these are things that we already knew about him and he's already displayed in other uh, contexts. So on the content slide, a, a slight nod to Biden. I think we got a little bit more out of him, even though it was hard to hear and understand things given the way the debate flowed. On the nonverbal side, uh, I would give a slight nod to Trump. Uh, and, and here's why. And it's interesting. I've read a few nonverbal analyses of the debate. But for me, if I turned the sound off and just watched their bodily cues and posture and gestures, Trump, at least at the beginning of the debate in particular, projected more confidence in terms of posture, gestures, eye behavior, and vocalics. Now, Biden had some great moments, uh, and the direct eye contact that he made with the camera was really effective when he used it, when he had those moments of talking to the American people. But he also did not handle the disruptions particularly well. Uh, he had more disfluencies. And at least at the very beginning of the debate, he did not project as much vocal confidence or command of the room. Uh, so it seemed like, you know, it took him a little while to warm up. So I give a slight nod to Trump on the nonverbals. Finally, I want to discuss the kind of meta-level messages about leadership. Um, I would say in this regard, it's, it's kind of a draw in terms of our understanding of the candidates and what they represent and what they're running on and who they are. I think, I think this just reconfirmed what we already know. Um, that the debate was a complete mockery of the system. Uh, was consistent with Trump's overall approach and philosophy, right? 
I mean, I, I think that played into what he tried to do in 2016 was come in as an outsider who was going to shake things up in Washington. Well, you could look at presidential debates and the structure and the rules of the moderator as part of the system, right? Here's the problem. Uh, he's the incumbent this time, not the outsider. And so a big takeaway that I think a lot of voters could have from this is that Trump himself is the cause of many of the problems in the current system. It's hard for him to claim that mantle of outsider status. And so uh, at the end of the day, while you could say that maybe interruption and trying to shake things up was part of a strategy, I don't know when you're in that position of incumbent that that strategically really sends the right meta level message about leadership. And we saw it in a lot of things that the two candidates discussed. Um, so that's, uh, that's something important to consider as we think about what we saw last night. At the end of the day, I'm going to wrap up just by saying this is a mess of a debate, but I, I want to leave you with the soothing words of Doc Brown, who said, don't worry, as long as you hit that wire with the connecting hook at precisely 88 miles per hour, the instant the lightning strikes the tower, everything will be fine. Thank you so much, Professor Miller. All right, next up, we got Professor Cottrell. Can you hear me? Yes. Thanks everybody for organizing Civic Fest uh, this week. It's it's super important. I was very heartened to see the crowd uh, of students uh, socially distanced watching the debate uh, last night. I got a photo of it from Pedro, and uh, I'm I'm really glad that people are engaging in this process because it's it's vital to the health of, of U.S. democracy. I'll tell you, I'm gonna be very frank in my comments. Um, this debate reminded me of a joke, a knock-knock joke about the interrupting cow. It goes like this, knock-knock, who's there? Interrupting cow. And when the person says interrupting cow who, the person interrupts and says moo, 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 and interrupts, right? Um, so Trump is the cow in this scenario. I, I don't think, I think I would take issue with people that uh, suggest some sort of equivalence in terms of why the debate was a quote unquote shit show. The shit show was coming more from one direction than the other direction. And I am going to attempt in my brief time here to unpack why, but I was one of the members of the audience who also felt exhausted. Um, I was watching with my daughter um, you know, the, her, the first presidential debate with one of my daughters, the, the first presidential debate where she's really kind of dialed into these issues. And is this what the example of, of U.S. presidential, a uh, U.S. president is, let alone a, a debate that's supposed to be about the health of the American people? Um, even my dog was exhausted um, at, at the time. Shout out to you, R2. Um, but this isn't a joke. This is really, really serious. Uh, it's about the future of our country, and I would I, I would add the the future of uh, of the world. Um, I come from the political science department, and what we do in the political science realm is what we we try to reintroduce complexity to uh, political issues. We try to develop tools and concepts and deploy concepts to help explain and understand complex political outcomes. We try to ask questions like, how do we know and test hypotheses about why people behave and why outcomes occur the way they do. And 
uh, hopefully use this work to generate uh, research that is going to inform enlightened policy decisions. So in that spirit, let me raise five questions about what we saw last night. First question I will be very brief on because Una already did an excellent job touching on it, which is how much do these debates actually matter? Political science nerds, <clears throat> the nerd consensus is not that much, not that much. Um, for many of the reasons Una provided, um, but they do matter for uh, pinning down candidates on issues, seeing them kind of side by side, especially the first one, how do they size up next to one another? Um, and as Jackson was noting as a kind of a performative ritual where uh, the media is able to uh, ask questions in a controlled environment of two candidates at the same time that ostensibly would be of interest um, to uh, the country and its citizens. Of course, with the inundation of ads and social media, uh, the fact that very few voters, I would agree with Una that uh, lower than 5% undecided, and those uh, voters who are undecided are not gonna be the ones likely to watch the debate. They're the ones more likely to the extent they're following it to be scrolling down their social media feeds and figuring out um, what the highlights are to think in, in, in those. Um, but it is, you know, useful to point out that most presidents will articulate campaign promises in debates and they tend to try to fulfill those campaign promises when they are elected. Um, I do wanna add one more political science concept nerd term in there, which is the so-called two presidencies thesis. I'm striking, uh, I'm struck by, you know, anytime people talk about, I have a plan for that, um, lots of plans for that. But the reality is in, at least in domestic politics, uh, a president can have the greatest plan in the world, but unless the stars align in Congress, um, it's very unlikely that plan is going to go through as is. So concerns about a radical socialist agenda, um, even if they were founded, um, have very, very little chance unless there's some, you know, weird senatorial alignment that no one is predicting or forecasting would happen. Um, that said, on the flip side, the president has a lot more control and a lot more authority over what happens in the foreign policy realm. And that is one thing that was conspicuously absent in last night's debate with the possible exception of uh, a little bit of climate change at the end. Um, a future debate, I suspect, uh, if, they, if we have one, uh, which I expect we will, we'll cover foreign policy issues, but these are the areas where the so-called imperial presidency um, is, is able to uh, affect uh, the, the most um, drastic change without traditional checks on power, especially in an era where, um, as we've seen in the impeachment hearings and so forth, where there has been an even more active attempt to uh, root out any so-called whistleblowers and fire ombudsmen or the uh, inspector generals if they are not playing uh, by uh, the rules of the Oval Office, just saying what the Oval Office wants it to. Second question. So let's turn to the over, Oval Office. The president's strategy. So what was the president's strategy and did it work? Um, well, uh, Jackson used uh, Doc Brown and Back to the Future. So let me go back to another couple of, of, of 80s movies. I think that the president behaved as if he were a love child between Colonel Nathan Jessup, you can't handle the truth, a few good men, and the sensei of Cobra Kai, um, 
in the Karate Kid. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. I mean, at one point, uh, I mean, my wife turned to me and said, oh my gosh, this is A Few Good Men. Are you for or against law and order? Um, and, you know, the uh, incessant interrupting and, uh, you know, merciless, relentless uh, attacks, impugning uh, the opponent uh, struck me as uh, very Cobra Kai-esque. Um, why? So, and the strategies, of course, the broader strategies, doubling down on the politics of fear, and of course, finding the squirrels. You know, debates are often about squirrels. You wanna get the shiny thing, the one phrase, the gotcha moment, right? That people are gonna be all talking about. And in this case, you know, uh, I think Trump really prepared, you know, on the campaign trail with a lot of things that rile up the crowd that have very little to do with the actual state of America. Hunter Biden, China plague. Joe, you can't remember the college you went to. I brought back football, okay? These are all about distracting from the issues at hand that, well, the president is not polling very well on at the moment. Take, for example, things like the economy or things like his taxes or, of course, the pandemic and the mounting death toll. Um, so what were the goals of this um, strategy? Well, I think the first thing obviously was to fluster Biden. You know, if you look at the, at the run-up to the campaign, uh, a lot of what you saw from uh, the, the president's um, Twitter feed is things like, you know, Sleepy Joe, is he gonna be on his meds? He's gonna have an earpiece, like these type of things. And this was all about an idea to confirm that narrative. So I do think that there was a, a personal strategy to try to get Trump on the defensive and to fit that, you know, fluster, blustering old narrative. A second strategy was to divide Democrats. There are lots of times where I, I think uh, the president tried to play um, the, you know, the more, uh, you know, progressive side, if you will, of the Democratic uh, Party against what Biden and Biden back and forth. Uh, and that happened a few times as well. And then, of course, um, to mobilize his own base, uh, the president's own base, and, and hope for a, a moment that's going to damage Biden. Because look, the polls, uh, the president rejects the legitimacy of most of the polls, but you know he's watching them and you know they don't look very good at the moment. Um, so um, what's interesting to me about the strategy though, is that he really did very little to um, cater to the populations that he needs to win the election, like female voters, which he's polling terribly on, like suburban voters. Um, and if, it is, if it's to mobilize turnout, to mobilize the base, turnout, 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 I don't know that he, I think the net would probably be a loss. I mean, more people might turn out to vote against Trump after that performance than for Trump. But I think the biggest story there is that he didn't really care to broaden the base. Um, and instead went all in on the so-called there's a classic piece essay called The Paranoid Style in American Politics by Richard Hofstadter, um, where heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy carry the day. Um, and this, uh, and, and Jackson uh, and Una both mentioned, you know, this uh, refusal to denounce when Wallace pressed him directly white supremacy, which I think is very, very 
uh, notable and lots of people are picking up on. All right, how about Biden? Well, Biden's goal, I think, were kind of twofold. One is to not avoid the pitfalls and all the traps that are being set, laid for him in this, in this debate. Um, and I already alluded to what some of them might be. And the second, of course, is to provide a clear alternative to uh, what the president is offering. And, you know, I think on that, you know, I've, I've read a lot of the coverage of the debates um, and the basic sum of it is, is that Biden did fine. I mean, he didn't, he didn't have a horrible moment, uh, which for him is a win. And most of the debate, uh, you know, the punditry, including on the right and the left, seem to suggest that, you know, whether it's a draw, it's this or that, it wasn't bad for Biden. It's not going to be a needle mover, which, of course, when you are in the lead in the polls, is always good for you. Um, I would like to note a couple of points, I think, that Biden had in the debate, where I, there wasn't a real lot of opportunity to have substantive discussion. Um, and so I don't think you can really, you know, I agree with, with Jackson's appraisal of the content. But the lines like, we are weaker, poorer, sicker, and more divided, worked. Um, it was a nice cadence. It, had, it was a nice rhetorical, rhetorical flourish. It summarized a lot of the issues. And I agree with, with, uh, with Jackson that when, when he appealed to the camera, and especially in that moment where Hunter Biden is being attacked for drug abuse, and he humanized. I mean, he was a much more of a human candidate that was seeking out the kitchen table, reaching across the kitchen table to American voters than, uh, than the president. Um, which, who I think, you know, treats American voters, a lot of them with, with contempt, actually. Um, so, um, the, uh, and the fact that, you know, I think people are, are, are criticizing Biden a bit for, you know, responding to, like, would you shut up, man, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, under the circumstances, I think if he didn't stick up for himself at some points, it, it could lead to a, a, a weak narrative, a narrative of weakness. And I, and I thought, um, you know, uh, it wasn't perfect, but he, he, he held his ground. Question four, um, and I'm not going to talk a lot about this. This is a question for discussion. How did Portland, Oregon come to play such a big role in this debate? Um, Portland, Oregon mentioned a couple times. Um, and uh, what I'm wondering for the students and for the panel is, should this have played a big role in the debate? Um, did Chris Wallace frame the issue and when he's the one that brought up Portland, Oregon, um, did he do so in a fair and balanced way, accurate way? Um, because it's treated as a set of assumptions. Chris Wallace exercised a fair amount of power in defining the issue. Um, I know we have several people probably in the audience who have been to uh, Portland at, on, the, on the margins of some of this activity. I'm curious, um, what was missing from the picture? Every picture is cropped. What's missing from the picture? What did our candidates miss? Um, um, I'll leave this discussion for you and wrap up with the final question of what does this debate and post-debate, post oh, my light just went on, hello. Um, what does it mean for America? And um, I just want to say, you know, make no mistake, people, this, this debate is about each and every one of us, each and every one of us. After all, it is we 
the American electorate that voted in the president. And he is attempting to undermine the most important basis for democratic accountability in our society, which is the ballot box, which is the ballot box. The other disturbing, I think most disturbing thing is how unabashed and the contrast between the two candidates uh, were in the, in, the, in the intent to uh, uh, not accept or have a peaceful transition if the election doesn't go. Now, this also happened in 2016, I would add. This is not anything new from the president. But what is new is the fact that having occupied the Oval Office for, a year, for four years and having political influence over places like the post office, um, can play a very, very big role. And the broader concern I have is whether this approach, the cynical approach to government and to the American people is going to further undermine trust in government, which is at an all time low and make people say, I just don't give a shit because they're all part of the same corrupt system. Well, uh, I don't know if the two candidates for everyone were a contrast, but for me, there was a stark contrast uh, in the responses to that question. And uh, I know that I feel more anxiety after that debate than I did before. And I canvassed my students this week and uh, my senior group of students, I think the vast majority of them felt a high level anxiety about the future of US democracy. Uh, my uh, first year, more first year, second year class, my lower division class, a little more divided, spread across the spectrum, but the highest category was a high level anxiety. And I think good, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you should be caring about the integrity of the political institutions um, and the legitimacy of the US democracy, which um, I do believe um, hangs in the balance. Um, I want to add end with I don't this seems like very uh, pessimistic note and I'm not pessimistic. Um, I think that uh, the election shapes up very differently in 2020 than it does in 2016 for a lot of reasons that I will talk about in a future pizza and politics. Um, and I do believe that the vast majority of Americans crave a different type of politics and a type of politics that uh, Uh, is enshrined in this letter from that I read uh, in 2016 when I was giving a talk um, in the, on the margins of the election, uh, written from George H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton. Here it goes. Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. This is written just after George H.W. Bush lost to Bill Clinton. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you see this note. I wish you well, I wish your family well, 
Your success now is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. That's what I got. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, so now we are going to go into the question and answer portion of the debate. If you guys in the room have not seen yet, we have the link to um, submit questions up there or you can raise your hand and we will call on you and we can relay your question to make sure that the Zoom people hear it. Um, to start off, you just want me to read them? All righty. To start off, let's go with, we've got so far a couple questions. Um, if a moderator knows that a lie is being used in an argument, does the moderator have an ethical responsibility to call out that untruth within the context of the debate? And or do you think that they should call out said untruth? Does anybody want to, anybody want to take that? Well, so just briefly, um, before going into that debate, Chris Wallace said that he didn't feel like it was his job as the moderator to call out uh, those issues. The better question is perhaps like, is it their responsibility? And I think that if it is, um, the nature of how that debate happens would have to change significantly, just because then it certainly wouldn't get to be a back and forth. And, and, and perhaps it being live would be more problematic. But before the debate began, Chris Wallace said he didn't feel that was his responsibility. So uh, I don't know if anyone watched Trevor Noah's response to the debate, but Trevor Noah makes the case. Uh, I thank my wife for forwarding this to me. She loves Trevor, Trevor, um, that there should be fact checking going on as the debate is going on. It doesn't have to happen from the moderator. And he suggested kind of a Tetrisy type thing where blocks would come on the screen and it would eventually, the more facts that are being, uh, you know, lies are being told or whatever, they, eventually the candidate's face would cover up. The only problem with that though, is that it depends, you know, a Fox News or a, you know, the different channel, whatever the news, not Fox or MSNBC or whatever it is, it wouldn't really matter. But would they have the same fact checking? I mean, the, the, common, the, the intersubjective understanding of what constitutes. And this is really one of the things we're facing as a country is that we can't seem to agree on basic uh, facts. And so I think that might be problematic. In a perfect world though, whoever asked this question, um, I mean, a moderator might be, have too much on their plate to be able to uh, you know, in, instantly fact check. Um, but I do think the preparation goes in and to the extent that they can and be part of a team that is responsible for it, ideally, that would be doing the best service to the American people. Um, but provided, of course, that people could agree on what the, the boundaries of facts were. All righty. We've got a question coming in from the crowd. All right. Now, my question would be in complete regards just to the commission for presidential debates, recent press release announcement, and that there are to be changes in the way that they are proceeding in presidential debates. Now, I have a question. Uh, do you think, number one, it was it's an appropriate response and do you and what 
All righty. So the, the question was from um, Elijah, and it is in regards to the announcement that they are going to be presenting changes in the possible upcoming um, presidential debates. Do you think that was the correct response? And what do you think those changes will look like? Hmm? Or and what you hope those changes will be? Um, I mean, the, the first thing I wrote down, Elijah, taking taking notes during the debate last night when I was watching it, is that there need to be some Zoom rules um, where there is some sort of host that can control the mic. Uh, I think that's probably the easiest way. I mean, there are some talk shows that use this uh, as well on you know sports and other and other uh, contexts. So I would think that um, you know Jackson noted. I mean, and and uh, both Una and Jackson are more experts than I am in terms of how debates are uh, prepped um, in terms of the hosting, but I, I would expect control over the microphone uh, would be one. This is not a serious suggestion, but I, I would like to have Steve Wilkos, you know, Jerry Springer's old bodyguard, just standing over to the side, just peering at the candidates. That might help. I don't know. It probably wouldn't. But yeah, I agree with Pat. I was thinking the same thing, some sort of ability to make the mic live or not live. Now, I, you know, knowing the contracts that the campaigns have and knowing the way particularly Trump would spin that, he would spin that as like, that's the media controlling me. You know, you're trying to silence me. You're interfering with my freedom of speech and expression. So I, yeah, I can't see the candidates conceding to that or the campaigns conceding to that, but maybe. Any other questions? Um, my question is pertaining to the written questions. It's more about, it seemed to be purposely set up to be a pitfall for Trump. And is that fair in that a debate should be something where it puts both candidates and keeps the fire? So this question was in regards to how the questions for the debate were written. Um, it seemed that the questions written for the debate created pitfalls for Trump and seemed to support Biden's campaign. Do you think that questions should be less targeted towards political um, members or and do you feel that they should create more of a neutral ground on uh, topics? I, I, I'd like to jump in first on that. I didn't I didn't read a serious imbalance in the questions. I mean, for me, what I was seeing and, and you know, like Una and Pat, I've, I've kind of been a nerd about these debates and watched them over the years. Um, those are the kind of questions that when you're the incumbent, you get. Uh, I, I mean, the incumbent, because they are setting the agenda, they are making the decisions, uh, they're gonna get those kind of questions. I and mean, I, that wasn't very different from one of my favorite debates of all time, which uh, was the George H.W. Bush Bill Clinton, Ross Perot debate, where if you look back at that, though, it looks like a lot of the questions are targeted at George H.W. Bush uh, of the three candidates. Uh, it's largely because he's the sitting president. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that they were as imbalanced if you look at the, you know, history of debates more broadly. I similarly, I felt like some of them maybe were worded in ways that targeted President Trump differently, but the areas, Supreme Court, climate change, COVID, race and violence, 
race and violence were one area together. Like I thought that 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 those areas made sense from somebody who's who works for Fox News, right? For Chris Wallace. So um, those initial areas to me perhaps favored um, President Trump more, but I do think that the way he asked them um, often sort of was an advantage to Biden, not uniformly. But. I, I think two things. One, um, this is a response to the candidate and to the, so the first, Jackson mentioned this, but when you're an incumbent, you have a record, you're running on a record. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, that's going to be a, a focal point for some of the some of the questions, and then to try to draw a contrast with the record with the with the opponent. Um, but then there's also, I think, Chris Wallace having interviewed Trump several times and having an already antagonistic relationship. Um, I think that he was um, playing the personality of it there. So if he seemed like a bit more. Um, I think he was kind of preemptive because he knew what was coming and and at times maybe overreacted and times maybe underreacted. Um, hey, you're going to like this one, Mr. President, you know, type of thing. So, um, yeah, I, uh, so I, I think, you know, if there were, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, I don't know what, uh, I'd be curious to kind of go through and see the questions again and, and think about it with not having it in front of me, but those are some off the, off the top reactions. Any other questions from people in the room? Alrighty, so now we are moving on to some submitted questions. Um, do you think that the upcoming v uh, vice presidential debate will provide the American people with a better idea of candidates' platforms and what is exactly happening in this election? Um, well, I guess I'll start since no one else is, is jumping in. Um, I'd, I'd be curious. I have a prediction that the vice presidential uh, debate will have better viewership than this first presidential one. Um, I think, you know, one of the questions I read a piece the other day that uh, my mom forwarded me, if you're there, hi, mom, um, is uh, on, you know, this, where is Kamala been? Um, Kamala Harris has not been super present. I mean, she's had some tweets and some, you know, and some and some speeches, but hasn't been a, a major figure on the campaign trail, and uh, yet. And I'm I'm wondering why and what the, you know, what the strategy is on the Democratic side for what her role will be in the in the campaign. Um, you know, she has this prosecutorial background, um, and I do think that she is. Uh, I think one of her. And I do think it'll be a very different stylistic debate, knowing what I know about what we know about uh, Vice President Pence and uh, Senator Harris. So I, I do think the potential for um, more policy discussion is definitely there and, and, and will be there. Um, the question is, um, will it be a, a debate about the ref a referendum on, on the Trump administration record? Or will it be more about what the Democratic view of America is. And I think that um, you'll see competing efforts um, on either side to, uh, to dwell in one area more than the other. But I think the election, if you don't know what the election's about, I mean, in all seriousness, with respect, um, there are huge stakes in, in, in this election. Um, and it is, uh, you know, 
I hope I hope that we are aware of uh, of, of some of the big questions uh, that are, are are facing us. We we talked about some of them in the in the remarks, but I'm happy to go into them if people are interested. Well, I, I just add to that, Pat. I mean, when we, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think as college professors and people are kind of debating politics nerds, we hope people are going into the election informed. That whole point I made about fetishizing the presidency, though, is that notion that uh, so often the question comes down to, well, which is the candidate I'd rather sit down and have a beer with, right? And and, and I mean, that's what I that's a little bit what I worry about that you know, some of these events like debates become just these media circus performance art things where it's less about the policy and more about the personality. Uh, I hope that's not the case. I do agree with you. It's an important election and voters need to tune in, but uh, I, I think that issue is still out there. All righty, um, another question. For those of us dehumanized and disturbed by the debate, would you encourage us to continue to watch even if it causes us pain? And for our younger siblings and or kids who are watching this alongside us, how do you suggest we address these actions which may be troubling for kids who have no ability to vote? So for like younger audiences who are, who understand the political spectrum and um, what's the word? You get what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a huge question that I think people are, in my opinion, have to answer for themselves. Um, I guess that <laughs> my my resting heart rate doubled during the presidential debate yesterday, right? That my beats per minute were twice what they normally are. Um, and I hope that I can use that energy to connect to my community, to remember the significance of my vote and to help people understand that and to continue to engage in conversations even when I think they're difficult. So I'm trying to use my discomfort um, as a place of energy to move forward, um, but that's that doesn't always work for me. And I think that's not always going to work for other people. And that question of how you help explain this to somebody who's younger, I think maybe a little bit of going back and, and maybe watching another debate too and understanding that like there can be a spectrum and that this is a moment um, might be helpful for them to grasp that everything feels very immediate. Uh, but, but again, there will be a swing. But I'm open to your all ideas too in terms of how to move forward. I, I agree with everything that Una said in terms of an individual choice here. I, I wanted to address the part of the question that was specifically about children and children watching this. And um, I remember the first presidential debate well, that I can remember watching was the 1980 debates between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Um, and I don't remember much from the substance of those debates, but I do remember this. I was watching with my parents. I must have heard something. I was an eight-year-old kid at that time. Some kid at school probably said this, but I said something like, Jimmy Carter, he's a farter. And my parents scolded me for that. 
They're like, that's so disrespectful to the president. This debate's really important. And that's always really stuck with me. I don't, I bring that example up because it's funny, but also because I don't know what you do when it's the reverse, when what you're seeing on the screen from the candidates is kind of the deplorable behavior. And then what do you do as a parent when you want to model kind of, you know, good civic responsibility and, and listening and, and understanding arguments and empathy for others is tough. Uh, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, I, because I do think, I mean, that was a lesson from my youth. Yeah, you want to, you want to give the candidates a, a, a fair listen and take what they're saying seriously. It's hard to do that when you've got a, a, a president who is saying things that are worse than that uh, comment I made as an eight-year-old kid on the screen. Um, so I don't know. I'm not a parent myself. I, you know, Pat mentioned at the beginning that he watched with one of his, uh, both of his daughters. I'd be curious, Pat, if you have anything or advice to add to that. Um, my personal opinion is, is that if, if, if you are feeling distressed watching the debate, don't watch it. Um, because there are a lot of uh, outlets to be able to inform yourself about the, um, the stakes. Um, I would encourage people and, and for kids as well. I mean, maybe, um, I mean, especially if, 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 if it's breeding cynicism in society or undermine, you know, um, so it could be something that you watch later or watch snippets of, or if, it, if it's, um, you know, you, you watch it first, just kind of like a movie, <laughs> you watch it first and screen it and then see if it's okay, appropriate. Um, but, but I, I would say, you know, another thing that I thought about um, is my class, uh, the, the senior class, which is really an outstanding class uh, this year, they always are, but this year in particular, and we did a reading for class on, on Monday called, uh, and I think lots of people would be interested in it, and you can just Google it, it's called Complicating the Narratives. And one of the things that we uh, are, are, are confronted with as a country is this kind of hyperpolarization where you have people from different backgrounds and who are uh, have have um, deeply um, you know meaningful personal experiences that relate to politics, lived experiences that are affected by these some of these big political questions that we're facing, and but everyone's experience is different, um, and uh, and I think that the more people talk to each other, I just think of that Saturday Night Live skit on. Black Jeopardy with Tom Hanks as the as a with his um, you know MAGA hat on um, is playing a uh, you know a quote unquote 2016 Trump voter and it's a brilliant skit because it gets at the commonalities that a lot of people face in a, in America today and uh, is one of the best things I've seen on a politics of unity type type thing. Uh, granted, this predated um, you know a lot of what, what's happened in the, in, in, in recent time, but um, this complicating the narratives piece gives a lot of advice um, and, and in terms of what types of questions a moderator might ask in these debates, um, how to get away from kind of, you know, traps that just rely on the moral foundations and reintroduce complexity, as I was suggesting earlier to the debate. So that might be a helpful resource. It's called Complicating the Narratives. And I think if you just Google it, you can find it um, for this, for whoever the question asker is to, to figure out ways to talk about some of these issues um, with people um, not only just kids, you know, but qu open questions like what, what is dividing America right now? And why do you feel that? You know, and, and these type of things will be much better than having, you know, uh, a discussion about the president's behavior, because that always, it's very narrow. One example. So I think that complicating the nerves.
Alrighty, we're gonna do a couple more questions and then call it a night. Um, so going on, after last night's debate, are you more or less concerned about the upcoming election? More. <laughs> uh, I'm more concerned by the discussion about the transition and the um, call out to the Proud Boys. That made me more concerned. Yeah, I, I would agree with Una. I, I, I'm more concerned and the, uh, the the two issues that she highlighted are the ones that uh, really increased my concern. I'm concerned to the point that I looked ahead on my course calendar for the classes I'm teaching to see what we're doing during election week, because I, I, I honestly think uh, for, for my students and some of the work we're doing this semester, we might have to give up on the plans we had that week and talk about things going on in the country. All right, I'm going to say I'm less concerned. Um, and uh, I articulated the grave concern I have in, in my comments about uh, the assault on the legitimacy of our election system. Um, but my, I, I, I think that, I don't think that this, I think this debate makes a decisive election outcome more likely than less likely than it was the day before. So, um, and the, if that happens, the, the, the roads for um, contesting the results are very, very limited um, and the grounds for that. And, and, I, and I do, I also believe, I mean, I think a big question is, you know, not just, we, people have a tendency and this is, you know, part of what we're dealing with here is that people focus on the person in the Oval Office and not the party. Um, what happens to the Republican Party? I mean, the Repu I mean, this is interesting around the Supreme Court nomination. Um, I mean, my tea leave reading is, I, I think that the Republican Party will abandon uh, the president in the case of uh, an election loss because they got the prize, which is uh, another Supreme Court seat, um, which will serve as kind of a, uh, for, for conservatives that are, that are um, you know, staunchly, pro-life, for example, um, I think that that will help them kind of get move on from President Trump, turn the page for the Republican Party, um, because I, you know, I mean, some of these behaviors have just been are unprecedented. Um, the amount of Republicans that I know who are disgusted by the president's behavior is through the roof. But I think it's also not wise to be dismissive. And I don't think people are dismissive now. Um, the president really does tap into a vein of anti-establishment, anti-elitism that is real. And if the, the Democrats and others and Republicans who are opponents, the never Trump Republicans, they, they ignore it at their own peril. Um, but I do think we're in a very, very different moment of political time right now than we were in 2016. And I think this debate um, made uh, it, it harder for Trump to get elected at this moment. Now, October surprises, I caveat this with, you know, it's a long time before election day. Um, but at the moment, I think that um, it makes the contestation of the election less likely. And I think the violence, I mean, the Proud Boys, for example, were supposed to have 
two or 3,000 people at Delta Park in Portland and 250 people showed up. Um, no violence. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know what to make of that, but you know, not everything, but we should, we should vote. Pat, I'm not trying to make you or anyone else uh, sleep less at night between now and the election, but I, I just wanted to say, you said the roads and grounds for contesting are limited. My worry is that they're only limited by by Trump's imagination, right? I, I mean, if if there are stories, even unsubstantiated stories about West Virginia mailmen doing things with ballots, about unregistered voters voting, about I, I mean, look, he lost by over two million votes in 2016, but he still said, you know, there were I didn't really lose. So I, I, I just think he's got such a command of his base that even if he wins the election by a wider mar or loses by a wider margin than uh, we're expecting, and maybe the debate moved the needle a little bit, uh, he's still got this wild imagination about voter fraud and mail-in voting and other things that he's been setting the grounds for with that narrative. So that's what's got me worried because I saw more evidence of that in the debate and he got that narrative more strongly out there to his base. How have Republican leaders been responding to those claims? I mean, I my, my read is that um, people are distancing themselves from it. Um, and I think that's an indicator. Uh, I mean, I look, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that uh, a decisive win for Biden will completely erase the the chances of either a contested election or political violence. Um, I mean, I've read some disturbing things about people arming themselves and just waiting for the word to strike to take the country back, right? But um, I also think that um, it's all going to come down to, I, I think that there is a bit of a Boy who cried wolf dynamic going on here. I think that there is Trump fatigue within the party, and um, and a lot of it will depend on the Senate too. I mean, this is going to be a. I mean, I think we should be watching the Senate very closely in addition to the Republican uh, to the to the um, presidential election. Thank you, everyone. I'm afraid I'm going to have to head out, but. But please keep the conversations going. This has been very helpful. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Una. We are actually going to um, cut it off there since we've answered pretty much all of the questions that were submitted. Um, thank you panelists so much for presenting and um, having this really difficult and really needed discussion with everybody here today. Um, yeah, we appreciate you. For everybody on the Zoom call, if you have not done so already, please follow the Linfield um, Political Science Instagram page. It is Linfield Pauls, P-O-L-S underscore I-R. And the Linfield Speech and Debate page, which is Linfield Speech, the letter N, debate. Um, yeah, we thank you all for coming out tonight. And we hope that this provided at least some sense of clarity after that very unclear debate. Thank you for tuning in to a Pizza and Politics episode of Polit Talks. We'll see you next time.